my life was forever changed when lying in bed one night, <clears throat> I come across the verse Galatians 2.20. And, and that verse taught me that Christianity is so much bigger than just Jesus dying for me so that I can now do my best to live for him and hopefully not make too many mistakes and not screw up too many times and because, you know, I'm nothing more than just a sinner saved by grace. See, that verse, it, it, it taught me, along with many other verses, about what happened on the cross, that, that it was much more than just a place where Jesus died for me and for my sins, although that was true. <clears throat> what was so beautiful about the cross is that I was placed inside of Jesus. I was placed with him. I was united with him on that cross so that when Jesus was crucified, me, the old self, the old Ross, was crucified and buried with him so he could be gone forever. Just as, just as Anne shared in that incredible testimony. That was, how cool is that, by the way, about her, her being so vulnerable and, and risking and sharing that incredible truth that the old Anne is gone. And that's true for all of us. And, and Jake, just so I, I, I saw you with the Pepsi can. We'll talk about that later, but that's something else. So, but, but that verse in Galatians 20 was more than just about what God took away. He also added something to us. And I love how that the King James puts it. The King James says this way, that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, not the old self, not the old man, but Christ lives in me. And, and the truth is that Christ, Jesus Christ himself, and, and the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence inside of me. He, he united himself, his spirit with my spirit, that we became one. We were one spirit. So that it's not up to me. It's, it's not about what I'm doing. It's about Jesus now actively expressing his life through me. So it's, it's not about me. It's not about how determined I am or how sold, up, sold out I am or how focused I am. It's about relying and trusting in the life and the power of Jesus Christ. And so the number one question that I get from people as I, as I teach this over and over to people is this. It's, it's how do I do it? How, how does Jesus live through me? What, what are the steps? What are the practical rules? What, what do I need to do? What should I do in this situation? What do I do when my husband does this or my wife says this or, or when my kids do this for the 18th time in the last 20 minutes? What, how do I let Jesus do this through me? And, and they're all valid questions, but that's what we want to look at this morning. So I got some good news and bad news for you. Here's the good news. The good news is we're going to look at that. We're going to try to, to, to understand what do we do? How do we live? Because that's the part of the letter that Paul's now going to begin to embark upon. He's going to look at this from a, a practical perspective uh, about how we live, how we live in community, how we, we live with our family, how we live at work, and, and how do we face the battles that we're all in. So he's going he's gonna to look at that. He's been delving into and studying the doctrine of our salvation, now he wants to look at the expression of it. How do we live? So that's the good news. That's what we're going to begin to look at now. But I got some bad news for you. That if you are expecting this to be a, what are the four steps? What are the five things I do? What do I do in this situation? Then I've, I've got some bad news for you. That's, that's not the answer. Because the reality is under the new covenant, that's not what Christianity is. You see, too often we're looking for an old covenant solution. The old covenant was, here are the list of rules. Here are the do's and don'ts. And it was more than just the 10 commandments. There were 613 commands that, that would be used to kind of give us some insight as how to, where to live. And again, that's old covenant living. 
The new covenant is something very different. The, the new covenant says you and I are united to Jesus, and so we're going to have to trust him. We're going to have to rely upon him. And so, so the practical teaching that Paul's now going to offer up to you and I, is, and really for the remainder of this letter, remainder of this book, can't be reduced to a series of rules or behaviors or, or something that you need to now follow. Instead, what he's going to do, he's going to describe to us what the life and the character of Jesus looks like. What will it look like when Jesus lives through us? How, how might we respond to certain situations? So let's read our passage this morning then, and let's see exactly what Paul's trying to teach to us. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we never have to ask you to be with us, that you just are. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, you are here and you're with us. You've taken up permanent residence with us. So we thank you for that. And and you set us free and you made us new people and, and now we get to live like that. And this morning as we begin to embark on on this passage, but really the section of this book in chapters four through six, where it's all about practical living, about what it will look like as we rely and trust on you. I pray, Father, that we would see beyond a a set of series of, of rules and patterns to follow, but we would discover that this is what life in you will look like, and that we would risk trusting you, and thereby being a light into a very dark world. So I'm going to trust you to speak through me, and I'm going to trust you to take whatever is said and somehow make it intelligent so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives. That we would hear not just theology, but we'd hear life. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage here, Paul, he says, I implore you, I, I urge you. And, and, and really what he's saying here is that he's, he's really inviting us. And he says, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, I found that word walk to be really interesting. The, the word is peripato in the Greek, and, and it's really a combination of two Greek words. Peri, meaning around, and pato, meaning to, to tread or maybe even to stomp. And so literally, this word walk means to try to tread all around or, or to walk all around, maybe even to stomp all around. And I, and I think there's some beauty to that in the fact that there, it lacks beauty. See, there's another Greek word that Paul uses in other places describing a walk, but it's a very elegant or very orderly walk. You, you kind of imagine someone who's, you know, went through a finishing school or, or, you know, school where they learned how to walk properly so they can, you know, walk with not just a, a book on their head, but a book a glass of water, an apple, and an orange, and three cherries. And they're able to just walk and none of it moves. That's a very elegant and very proper walk. That's not the walk that Paul's talking about here. It's a very simple walk. It's almost, a, like I said, a stompy walk where you're just sort of stumbling around. It's, it's an everyday walk. And I think that's what he's describing here is this, this everyday living. As you move through life, he's basically saying, 
And, and it's not so much life as a whole. I think that's really important. I hope, I hope you can understand what I mean by that is that too often we, we evaluate, am I doing this all the time? How well am I doing it on average? What's my score? And, and that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about when you look back on your life, did you do this walk? He, all he's talking about is in this moment, in this specific moment. And, and, and I say that because he uses the Eorus tense here. So it's in this moment, as you stomp around, as you move through life, this is how we're to walk. Because the reality is life is a collection of moments. And some are great moments. Some are exciting moments, right? The, the, the moment of your, you know, the first time you kissed your, your husband or your wife or, or the, the moment when your child was born and, or the moment when the child set the dog on fire. Special moments like that. There are all kind of moments. And then there are some other moments, just regular moments where, we're, where you're going for a walk or you're, you're driving in your car, you're going to a beach. Life is a collection of all these moments. And, and what Paul's inviting us to is within this collection, within each and every moment, this is how we can walk. And so what's beautiful is it doesn't matter what happened five years ago or even 15 or 20 years ago. It doesn't matter what happened five months ago or five weeks ago or five days ago or even five minutes ago. All that matters, all the invitation is, is into this moment, right here, right now, He's inviting us, he's urging us, imploring us to depend upon Jesus. I, I, I love this, this verse, and I'd really encourage you to memorize this verse. And It's Colossians 2 and verse 6. It's a real simple verse, a, 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 a very short verse, so it's easy to memorize. But, but I'm going to share it with you, sort of a, a, my own paraphrase, an amplified version, so to speak, to really highlight the power of this verse. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. That's the actual verse, but, but I've highlighted, I've added some words, some phrases to it because I really want you to understand what he's talking about. Think about it. How, how are you and I saved? How did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? It was by grace, by God's doing, by his power through faith, us trusting in him. So how do we walk? How do we peripato? How do we stomp around? How do we live in each and every moment? In the exact same way, by God's grace, by God's power, by God's doing, through faith, through trusting, through depending upon him in us. That's how we live. So just like we trusted him for salvation, we trust in his power in this moment, right here, right now, in his ability, in his grace, knowing that it's sufficient no matter what we're facing. And, and what I think most people get scared of with this is to do so requires us to hear from him, to walk with him, to talk with him, it requires a relationship, much more than just Jesus being an acquaintance, much more than just knowing about Jesus. I need to now have an intimacy, a trust with Jesus. And that's why I think what he's inviting us to. And, and so how are we to walk? It, it, he says here, back in Ephesians 4 and verses 1 and 2, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called right? <clears throat> Please note that this is so important. Paul will Paul actually make these, these similar statements to, to remind us throughout chapters 4 and 6 so we don't fall into this performance trap, that we're not walking because or hoping that we will be then worthy of this calling, that if we do this, if we live properly, then you will be called. Rather, you have been called. 
It's a done deal. God did it. It's very clear in the, in the, in the scripture and the language that God has called you. He has made it. He has done this to you. And now we're to live accordingly. And I think it's so easy for us as a church to, to forget this that we slip back into a performance trap. I mean, it's, it's really, it's plagued the church all the way back to even Paul's time, where the, we've, we've fallen into the trap. It's all about performance in order to, to prove or to earn or to please or, or to do something. And again, the reality is, this is who you are. This is who God's made you. And so what I want to do is, is I want to do a brief rundown of some of the passages that we've looked at in these first three chapters. Because it's, it's, I think it's been really powerful to describe what, what God has done. And so let's look at Ephesians 1 and verse 3, where it says, first, blessed, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Isn't that incredible that, that you don't have to wait, you don't have to pray for more. He's already given us everything we need. And then Ephesians 1, 4, he's made us holy and blameless. Again, done deal. You're not becoming more holy. You're not becoming more blameless. You already are by God's doing. Ephesians 1, 7, you are completely, entirely forgiven, set free from all your sins, every single one, all the little ones, all the big ones, all the ones in your past, all the ones in your future. doesn't matter how many times you did it. doesn't matter who you did it with. doesn't matter that you're going to do it again and again and again. You've already been forgiven. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, that you and I have been promised an inheritance from God. That, that inheritance includes the Holy Spirit living in us, enabling us to overcome sin in this world. And that's just a down payment. That, that blows my mind. That, that the down payment of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. And you've already gotten it. And yet there's more to come. And then Ephesians 2, 1 to 6, and talking about how you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were, you were by nature children of wrath, living according to the flesh in this world. But you and I, we were crucified with Christ. We were, we were made alive with him, raised up and seated with him at that right hand of the Father, with him in heavenly places as new creations. And all of that is true right now. John Lynch just says, likes to say, on your worst day, that's who you are. You're right next to Jesus, seated with him in heavenly places. And then Ephesians 2, 7 to 9, it says he, he lavishes us with his grace. He lavishes us with his love so that he could display this free gift of love and grace over and over for all of eternity. Just, just lavish us, display it through on us. Isn't that incredible? He loved us so he could love us some more. Beautiful. And then Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 talks about how he's abolished all barriers of race, of gender, of political opinion, of ability, of talent, of skills, of preferences. He's made us one. This gathering, the ecclesia, the body of Christ that we know as the church, that's who we are. And we're united. And then Ephesians 3, 14 to 20, that he's given us great power, Holy Spirit power, so that we would be able to do two things. One, rely, depend upon Jesus. And two, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know that you're loved, so loved. That, that's what chapters one to three were all about. And, and he, he spent so much time, half this letter, just driving that point home so you would remember who we are. 
Because ultimately, that's so important. We need to remember who we are and who we're not. You are not, hear this, hear this, beloved, you are not a sinner saved by grace. That is not the definition of a Christian. It's not a phrase that is ever uttered anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't define who you are. The sinner, the natural man, the old self, the old man, the old you, who you were when you arrived here on planet Earth, before you were saved, that person, the real you, was, past tense, completed action, for all time, praise God, was crucified with Christ, no longer lives, buried. Instead, you and I were born again. It's a brand new creation. You became a new person, literally a new person within your spirit. The real you was born again as someone new, as a holy one, as a saint, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, redeemed and righteous and already now completely made perfect. Even though you don't live perfectly, because you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by what Jesus did on the cross. And so we're saints who sometimes sins, but saints nonetheless. I love how Ephesians 4, 24 tells us about this new self, which has been created in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Why is this important? Isn't it just semantics, you know, whether I'm a saint or a sinner, sinner saved by grace? Isn't that just semantics? I mean, really, aren't we all saying the same thing? No, 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 no. So far from it. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man believes in his heart, so is he. Right? This idea that truth trusted transforms. See, if I think I'm no good, I will live no good. If you treat people like they're no good, they will live no good. If you believe you're nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, how will you live? Chances are you will live like a sinner. But if you believe that you're a saint, a holy one, a righteous, beloved, redeemed, safe and secure child of Father, child of God, how might you live? You might live like one. You might live like a, cha a changed person. You might live like a saint. And so that's, that's the invitation that God's giving to us. See, I, I want you to think about it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have this, this great chapter on love, right? I mean, but I want to give you the context of, of, the, of the chapter here because beginning halfway through, through chapter 11 in Corinthians, Paul's talking about what does public worship look like? What does it look like when the church, the, the, the holy ones gathered together in public? And he's explaining what that could look like. And then at the end of chapter 12, he says, but let me show you what the better way is. He, he almost goes on a little bit of a, an aside, a rabbit trail, and des describes the most important aspect of all of this. It's about love. So, so it's not primarily about marriage, which is sadly when often we read 1 Corinthians 13, it's almost relegated to marriage. It's, it's not about marriage. It's about living and interacting with one another. And so he's going to describe what love is going to look like. And, and he describes it this way. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a feeling, it's an action. Because love is, love is what we do. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, the greatest definition of love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. 
it does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and even goes into love never fails. What a great description. What a, what a beautiful description of what love does the nature of this agape love. And again, it's not a sentimental feeling. Like we've made that love, this idea that you, you know, we fall in love and fall out of love. And I just don't feel love for this person anymore. And, and, and we've made it a feeling. That's, that's not what love is. Love is what you do. Well, First John 4, John there tells us that love is, love is actually a person. That, that God is agape. God is love. And so that's really important that we understand that, that it's the source of this agape, the source of this power is really in a person named Jesus Christ. But if love is a person, if love is Jesus, then, then what we can do, and this is really cool, we can insert Jesus into that passage we just looked at, and you'll just see really what love is, is just the character of Jesus. Watch this. Let's read it again. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind and is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek his own. He is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never failed. Isn't that, isn't that a great description of who Jesus is? I think that's pretty cool. We're not done yet. Because you see, when you were born again, made as a new person, made in the likeness of God, with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his truth, now actually indwelt and empowered by Christ in you, then really that passage describes you, describes your nature, who you really are. So I want you to, I want you to read the passage, hear it this way. Christ in Marco is patient. And, and Christ in Janus is kind and is not jealous. And Christ in Greg does not brag and is not arrogant and does not act unbecomingly. And Christ in Megan does not seek her own. And, and Christ in Anita is not provoked, does not take account of wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And Christ in joy endures all things. See, really, that's, that's who we are. That's, that's who you are, beloved. And Paul's not inviting us to try to be this person. He's inviting us to now live like the person we are. And so to help us understand this in more detail, I think what Paul's gonna do is he's, in, in these three chapters, he's describing the characteristics of the saint. And so hopefully, in understanding these characteristics, we'll be able to better identify how Jesus wants to now behave, how Jesus wants to live through us, how he's inviting us through, to live. And, and the first thing he uses, the first description of this characteristic he uses is the word humility. The, the Greek word there is tape, oh man, I've been practicing and I blew it. All right, take two. 
Tapeno frosune. All right, I've been practicing all week and I blew it on my one chance. Tapeno frosune. Say it with me. Ta peno frosune. Ta peno frosune. Ta peno frosune. Ta peno frosune. You just learned Greek. Isn't that beautiful? As you can see, it's not a simple Greek word. It's not like agape. It is a complex word. It is a compound word. It's a word that they basically have Frankenstein together to come up with this word for humility. And what I find really amazing about that is that it's not found in Roman and Greek literature before Paul. It's almost like Paul had to invent this word, that he had to create it, that he had to develop the word because it didn't exist before. It didn't show up. In fact, it does show up later, but when it shows up later in Roman writing, it's shown up in a demeaning way. And often it's talking about believers, it's talking about Christians, but it's talking about it in a negative way. Because you see, humility in that time was really seen as weakness. It wasn't a positive trait, it was a negative trait. And, and I think that's kind of true in the world. I mean, we talk about the importance of humility and kindness and so forth, but think about how much we reward arrogance. We reward ruthless and cutthroat. It's why we have the phrase, nice guys finish last. Think about the political leaders we vote for. I mean, we, again, we attack those who have any, any aspect of kindness. It takes this almost a harshness to win political office, to win in business and so forth. And yet the reality is, as believers, we're invited to humility because that cutthroat <clears throat> might, might produce short-term gain, but long-term it hurts and it damages. But humility, humility is the way forward. So let's define humility with some statements here. The first statement I want to use is humility is having an honest view of yourself. It's an honest view of yourself. It doesn't mean that you look negatively down on yourself. Please understand. Too often, that's what we've, we've done. Well, humility means that you have, to, <clears throat> you have to be negative towards yourself. No, 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 no. You don't have to see yourself as a worm or no good or, or unlovable or rejected. That's not it. Remember, you're a saint. You're a child of God. You're part of a royal priesthood. And so humility is recognizing that. It's recognizing who you are, but it's because of what God has done. That's what allows the humility. It's not because of what you've done that you're a saint. It's because what God has done that you're a saint. And when you recognize that, that will bring that humility. That will bring you low because you will be in awe. The next statement is humility is grateful. Because what happens is when you recognize who you are, you're going to live differently. You're, you're going to be thankful because you recognize it's a gift. You didn't bring this about. You didn't make it happen. God did that. And so you're, you're able to, to be far more accepting of even of other people. So that's the next statement. Humility no longer looks down on others. Because when you recognize who you are is because what God's done, it will bring you low and you will look now equally towards other people. Because again, the reality is before Jesus, the whole world is in the same boat. 
And, and now I can look towards others and there's equality. And that, by the way, will end racism. Because no longer do you look down on someone of a different race. But also means you don't look down on police officers or people of other careers or jobs and in IQ or anything different. Because there's equality. The next one is <clears throat> humility celebrates what others have and is not jealous. See, too often we, we have this, this aspect of pride that, oh, I wish I had it or I need that. Humility is just, it just celebrates what others have. And, and you don't need that. You, you're content with what you have. And so you actually get to enjoy what other people have. You get to enjoy the fact that, you know, the Hummels get to enjoy their pool or enjoy, you know, Barry gets to enjoy his retirement now. You get to be excited for them and enjoy that. Uh, humility is not boastful. It doesn't need to, to go around and boasting about what I've got. It's okay. Because I've been given this as a gift. And so humility, humility can accept failure. Humility can accept that it blows it from time to time. Humility can admit its mistakes because it doesn't change who I am. And then true humility has nothing to prove. Nothing to earn or to acquire. It can just rest and enjoy what God's already given us. And then true humility leads to contentment. It leads to rest, confident in who we are and what we have. Beautiful, beautiful rest. And so he starts with humility because I think humility is so important. It's critical. But then he goes and he says, humility and gentleness. The, the King James Version uses the word meekness. <laughs> if the world has no use for humility, it's really got no use for the word meekness. I mean, we ridicule it. I mean, meekness is equal to weakness. Isn't that how we often teach it or how it's, how it's understood? But here's what meekness really means. <clears throat> Hume, meekness, sorry, is better translated or better understood as strength under control. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from movies. One is the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. You remember the old version, the black and white version, where Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch? Atticus Finch, he's a, he's a white lawyer come to defend a black man who has been accused by a white woman of rape. Basically, what she did is she came on to him and he ran away from it and she was so offended she accused him of rape. And because he, she was white and he was black, clearly she must be right. But Atticus Finch goes to defend this man as a lawyer. And in the scene that I'm thinking of, he goes and he confronts the, the father of this man, of this woman, of the accusation. And... and you know, Atticus Finch, he's six foot three, broad shoulders, big, powerful man. But, but the father is a little rascal, a little runt, a little puny man, and he's tiny. But he is cursing out Atticus. He's just yelling at him and trying to rile him up. And eventually he spits in Atticus's face. And Gregory Peck did, did such a great job acting. You could see there's anger there. Like, how dare you? And you can see in his mind for a moment, he's just thinking of pounding him into the ground. And he probably could based on the difference of size. But Atticus doesn't do anything. He doesn't react. And there was strength, but it was all under control. 
Or, or I'm thinking of another movie from one of my favorite characters of all time, the movie of Superman, Man of Steel. And early on there, there's Clark Kent. He's, he's working in a bar. He's, he's bussing tables. And, and he comes to the defense of one of the waitresses because one of the patrons there had gotten a little too friendly with the waitress, slapping her on the, on the back end. And so Clark Kent comes and comes to her aid. And this man gets all offended and he's yelling at Clark Kent and he pours a, a pitcher of beer soaking Clark. And then he pushes him trying to attack him. But he's Superman. <laughs> Doesn't work. And again, you see all that strength under control. Again, he could have crushed him, but he didn't. Strength under control. Now, the next scene goes on where he, he basically takes the man's truck and inserts four or five light poles through it. And that's, 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 that's not so good. That's where, where the strength under control kind of ends at this point. But before that, <clears throat> that was what meekness is. So you think about Jesus. Jesus, again, is the personification of meekness. It took strength to remain on that cross. With all the insults, with all the jeering, with all the accusations. It took strength to love the Pharisees. It took strength to not fight back in, in his trial. That's meekness. Strength under control. Strength with, with gentleness. And that's what we need. You see, the reason is because... Because gentleness is attractive in this world. It's so needed. It, it's, it's so important. Because without that gentleness, without that meekness, without that strength under control, you're not going to earn anyone's trust. And if, if they don't earn your trust, or you don't earn their trust, sorry, they're not going to be able to receive your love. Think about it. Think how many times you've seen someone who's right, and they're offering some words of encouragement, but there's no gentleness attached to it. There's almost an edge to it. How much do we receive that? We don't. I mean, I've seen, you turn on any 24-hour news channel and you just see these pundits and there's an edge and a bite to them. And what they may be saying is true, but there's such a caustic vibe to it that you can't receive it. Or you'll see it in this world where someone offers to you some counsel or advice, but there's an edge to it. There's a there's a different, a critical tone to it. There's no gentleness, no compassion, no understanding. And we can't receive it. And so it's with humility and gentleness. Humility and meekness, the strength under control. That's what we need. And then Paul goes on to add, with patience. King James Version here used long-suffering. I love this idea of patience. Patience, I would say it this way, is the ability to wait with people while they struggle in their immaturity. Isn't that beautiful? Patience is the ability to wait with people while they struggle in their immaturity. See, Philippians 1.6, it teaches us this, that, that God's at work in every one of us. He began a work long time ago, long before you ever knew him. The work, we could trace it to at least back to the cross. But he began to work in your past, and he's going to complete that work sometime in the future. He's doing the work, but it's a work in progress. What that means is you're right where you're supposed to be. You're, you're, you're okay that you don't have it all together. Even though you don't act perfectly, you are perfect, but God's doing this work in you, and you're right there. He's bringing you along, along into maturity. The best way I could describe it to you is, is think about my son, Caleb. 
My son Caleb is 100% all boy. He is entirely male. He was male the moment he was born, before that even. And now as he's growing, he's maturing. And he's becoming the man that he's always been. He's not becoming more male. He's not becoming more man. He's just discovering the man that he is. That's maturity. And that's what God's doing in you and I. He's bringing us into maturity. He's developing that maturity, not just with you and me, but with all of us. And what that means is I can trust that each day God's done that work. God has, has taken that, that, that person, my neighbor, my family member, and he's, they're one step closer. They're one step more mature, bringing us to that ultimate goal of maturity. And patience is understanding that. Patience is the ability now to rest and trust in that. So it allows us to see people for who they really are, not for how they act, not for what they're doing in the moment, but who they really are. And so with this humility and this gentleness, along with patience, what will it do? It's going to show tolerance, he says. Show tolerance and love. See, too often what I see people doing is they, they judge themselves by their motives, but they judge others by their actions. I screwed up, but I meant well. You, you just screwed up. You just said the wrong thing. Well, what if this tolerance, this forbearing, this the ability to stand alongside someone, what if, what if we didn't judge? What if we didn't condemn people? What if, what if we could accept? What if we could tolerate, stand with them? Instead of fighting and instead of attacking people, we stand beside them. Well, this gives people the freedom to fail, the freedom to make mistakes, the freedom to be immature, the freedom to be where they're at, wherever they're at. You see, we don't need to always have to agree on everything. We have this phrase we like to use often, diversity is our strength. But the reality in the world is diversity is our strength as long as we all agree with one another. And the moment you disagree with me, then I'm going to cancel you and I'm going to attack you because you're no longer following the orthodox teaching of us. That's not tolerance. That's not diversity. Tolerance, diversity is we don't have to agree. We can agree to disagree on really big fundamental things even. But I'll still stand with you. I'll still love you as long as you allow me to. That's what tolerance is. That's what real tolerance is to be able to disagree on fundamental things. So someone could reject Jesus even. And I don't, I don't have to reject them. I get to still love them. Someone could drink Pepsi. And I can accept them, Jake. I can stand with you in your immaturity as you grow in that and discover. But I digress. And so we can disagree, we can debate, we can argue, but you'll always have an open door. That's what tolerance is. So this humility, this gentleness, patience, showing tolerance and love. Don't you see that this, this doesn't this describe the, the life and the character of Jesus? Absolutely. Remember the invitation that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30, to these Jewish people who are struggling under the weight of the law, struggling, trying to perform, trying to measure up. What does he say to them? He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, all who are tired of trying to perform a measure up, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, because I'm gentle 
I am humble in heart. And you'll find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, I want to I want to make this connection because the connection is vital for you and I. That we understand it's not your job to create humility. It's not your job to act with, with humility. It's not your job to drum up or to discover this meekness or this gentleness and this patience. That's not it. All of that is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Christian. It's not your job to produce it. It's your job to bear it as the Holy Spirit produces it, as He develops it within us. Let me, let me illustrate it to you this way. I started off by saying that this is a walk that Paul's inviting us to, and right into this, this walk in this moment. So, and, and life is these collection of these moments. And so you're on this pathway, and now you come up to a fork in the road. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I follow this path or do I follow that path? What do I do in this moment? And again, that's the question. I want Jesus to live in me. Well, which, which path is it going to be? Well, I think what Paul's doing is he's describing the character of Jesus so that you'd be able to look down these paths and, and kind of judge which path is the one of humility, which path involves gentleness and, and meekness and patience and tolerance and love. Because whichever path you see that includes those characteristics, chances are that's the path that Jesus is inviting us on. That's what he's, he's, he's describing for us so that we would recognize it and we would say, okay, Jesus, this is what you want to do in this moment. So I'm going to trust you to express all of that. I'm going to trust you to show this humility, to show grace, to show patience, to show love, to show tolerance, to treat others as I would like to be treated, treated some might say. And friends, that rule is golden, so follow it. I know for me personally, if I can share a quick example. I, I remember one time I was sitting in a, in a church listening to this message and, and, and the pastor's going on and on about the law and how we need the law, how far we need to follow the law. And, and I remember him saying, what's wrong with the law? And inside of me, everything was screaming. Nothing's wrong with the law except it will kill you. It will destroy you because that's what it does. It's a minister of death and condemnation. So don't follow the law run to Jesus. And I, I was ready to charge the stage. I really was. I kid you not. I kept praying, Lord, I've had enough. This is the moment. And I was ready to go. And he said, stand down, son. And here's why I think he said that. If I'd have gone up there, there would have been no humility. Well, maybe, no, there would have been very little. There wasn't going to be any, any meekness. There wasn't going to be any tolerance and patience. I was going to rant. I was going to have at it. And, and I would have been right theologically. But I've been wrong because there would have been no love. I wasn't ready. I'd have been, I was too immature. And so he said, stand down, son. Not the time. So I didn't go. Because it wasn't time yet. And that's okay. And so recognize and look back on it. We can see the paths that we can follow now. So here's my challenge for all of us this week. I implore you, I urge you, I'm inviting you to look for opportunities to express that humility, to express gentleness and patience, to express this tolerance, show this tolerance and love to your spouse. Express it to your kids, to the people you work with, to your neighbor, to the person who cut you off 
on the road because traffic is getting busier and road rage is happening again. To the people who wear masks or don't wear masks. To the people at the store or, or, or people who are different than you. People who look differently, who act differently, who have different political views or different ideas than you do. I urge you, show them humility. Show them meekness. Show them gentleness. Show them patience. Show them tolerance and in love. And when you screw up, because let's face it, you're going to screw up. Get right back up, apologize and in that moment. Because it's not about doing it right, perfect all the time. All that matters is in this moment, will you trust? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to create this. It's not up to us. It's not a, a list of rules that I have to now perform and develop. That's not it. All I need to do is trust you. And you've given me the power to do so. You've given me the strength and the power to rely upon you, rest in your life, rest in your strength, and you will express this now. Help me to identify the path. Help me to identify how you want to express humility, meekness, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love towards others. Because when that happens, when that's being expressed, you are expressed. Light is being expressed to this world. And this dark, dark world needs you. So thank you that we can trust you to make that happen. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Let me again remind you, reach out to one another. Encourage one another. Drop them a, a line. Send them a note. Maybe show up at their doorstep with a, with a coffee or, 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 or donut, a muffin, or, or hang out with one another. Go for a walk. Reach out for prayer to one another. If you want, you can reach out to the elders. We'd, we'd love to pray for you. And, and simple, you can go to the website, newlifekw.ca, and hit the prayer button and just fill out a form or, or send an email to prayer at newlifekw.ca. And, and we'd love to pray for you. Or if, if, you're, if you're struggling and you have any other needs, physical needs, as a church, we would love to support you in that. And so by all means, send that prayer at newlifekw.ca or, or, or just... Send us a message to the website, and we would love to see how we can help and bless you. And, and finally, if, if you're in loving and enjoying what New Life is doing, and you want to see more of it or see it in even greater ways, then we would love for you to come alongside and support us financially. And again, you can do that on the website, newlifekw.ca. Have, have a great day, guys. You are loved. You are so loved. Remember who you are and who lives in you. Bless you guys. Thank you.